to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Todd here. I am joined today with my good friend, Mark Norquist. Mark, how are you? Hanging in there, Todd. What's going on? It's springtime. Uh, turkey season's coming up. A lot of stuff going around uh, on the outdoor front. What's happening with you these days? Yeah, it's busy, man. I tell you, it's a, the shoulder season, spring and fall, always just seem to get stacked up with things. So I'm I'm getting ready to basically hit hit the road for almost a month it feels like with a bunch of different events going on related to hunting and fishing and things like that from Oklahoma to Wyoming, Montana and and other places in between but I'm really excited this coming weekend we're actually doing a mentored uh, turkey hunt up north and uh, so we got a bunch of people that are are going to be getting out in the woods and turkey hunting for the first time and a lot of really uh, important mentors who are who are part of that process. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear that, uh, hear, hear more about it. Um, you know, turkey season opens up next week here in New York, so May 1st, and so it runs through the month of May. So I'm hoping to get out at least a couple of mornings. Um, always try to. It's a great time of year, fun time to be in the woods. Uh, a friend of mine, Emma Ellsworth with uh, Mount Grace Land Trust, saw her Friday night at, a, at an outdoor banquet. She was telling me how hard it's been for her to shoot her first turkey. And then she sent me a text this morning um, where she shot a tom um, just after daybreak this morning, her and her husband in Massachusetts. So uh, the birds are, you know, they're active, they're gobbling. Uh, it's an exciting time of year. I was thrilled to hear about Emma's success, and I hope everybody else has a lot of success too. Yeah, it's it's been pretty quiet here. I mean, people have been getting birds, but um, man, it's been a cold spring so far. Like today, I think the average high right now is supposed to be around sixty-five, and right now it's thirty-five, and uh, and so the birds have, have have still been gathered up and and aren't as active as we'd hope, but. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if I'm able to get out myself in Minnesota. My backup plan, though, which is nice, is uh, if anybody listened to the last episode of the Modern Carnivore podcast, I had Ed Arnett on there, and I mentioned in there that uh, hopefully we get out and and uh, go hunting some birds sometime. And actually, we're going to have an opportunity here in a few weeks. We're going to try to chase some turkeys in in Wyoming. So, uh, so the, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds great. So those are probably what Miriam's turkeys out there. They're Western turkeys, right? Or they're yeah, they're you know, turkeys I, in I haven't even had a chance to check that out. That was one of my questions that I had mm -hmm. was because I've never even thought of of hunting turkeys in Wyoming. We're both going to be out there speaking at uh, this industry conference, and and so uh, he said, "Hey, let's 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 go turkey hunting." So I'll I'll have to let you know on that. Sounds great. Uh, looking forward to hearing about it. Good luck, everyone, as you get outdoors. Be safe. Enjoy turkey season. Let us know how you're doing. Um, I hope to do some trout fishing here as well. You know, May is a really good time for trout fishing. Uh, the Burke trout ponds in the Adirondacks are opening up. The water's warming up a little bit. So there's all sorts of fun opportunities. Um, I'll also be out of uh, out of school for two or three weeks as well. So have some weekends open where maybe we can get outdoors and enjoy it. Um, and so looking forward to that. 
Uh, really excited about this week's conversation. Uh, folks, we've got a conversation coming your way with Rick Mariner from Blue Nest Beef. And we're talking about regenerative ag. We're talking about Blue Nest Beef's efforts to bring healthy food uh, and connect that with healthy soils and healthy birds and healthy cows. And, you know, it's all relevant to this conversation that we have around eating responsibly, right? And thinking about our footprints. We're hunters and anglers. We think a lot about that through the conservation ethic lens. And this is a, I think it's a great extension of that whole conversation around being mindful around our food um, in the conversation that Rick brings. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think it, um, I think it hits, hits right in the bullseye, to be honest, you know, Rick and I met at, at, at Pheasant Fest and, and, you know, I've always been a supporter of, you know, a lot of the grass fed beef operations and how they work, et cetera. Um, and, and as that space has, has evolved, and that's just purely from the standpoint of, I, th- I think there's a lot of good aspects to those practices, but as that's evolved and regenerative agriculture in and of itself as a discipline has evolved and, and it's gotten more widespread, it's just been exciting to look at it. I think again, through the lens of somebody who's not only concerned about what food you're eating, but as a hunter, because these operations and you and you'll hear Rick talk about you know their Audubon certified conservation rancher program um you know that is really creating these these landscapes or or keeping these landscapes in states that are so healthy for all of the things that are important to to hunters you know you think about a lot of the conservation work that's being done out there by hunter groups and and what's important for priorities it's it's uh p- you know putting investment into the ground so that you know everything from the soil to the forbs to the insects are there for the game birds that we love to hunt you know whether it's bobwhite quail prairie chicken sharp tail grouse all these birds that have really been in decline in recent decades and years, and it is in a large part due to loss of loss of habitat, right? And and so these practices with regenerative agriculture not only results in great products that you can you can respons- feel feel good about and buy responsibly, but also creates great environment for I think spaces that that's good for wildlife. I completely agree. And you know, when we're talking about regenerative agriculture, we're talking about you know, how we can, and Rick will talk about this, about what they're doing to adjust farming practices to keep soils healthy, um, to emulate natural grass ecosystems, the roles that ungulates have played on these landscapes for thousands of years in North America. Um, you know, all the co- carbon co-benefits and, and the bird benefits with the Audubon program. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, and, and it's a really cool story. And uh, Rick's got an interesting background. Um, you know, I also want to point out that we're talking about their their fun Boba Link beef snacks. Um, and, and for listeners out here, we've got a discount code that Rick is sharing. It's ModCarn80, ModCarn8080. If you use that as a discount code, you'll get 80% off your first order of Boba Link uh, meat snacks. They're wonderful. Uh, both Mark and I have had some, our families enjoyed them. Um, they're naturally fermented through like a sourdough process. They're good. Um, they're fun to eat. 
And so Rick's going to tell the whole story about how they've come out with that and like how you can have fun, eat good food and uh, feel good about it as well. I've just, I've just eaten my last one here and uh, my daughter can't get enough of these. I, I only had one left because she ate the rest and uh, asked if when I'm going to buy more. So they are, <laughs> they are really good. And yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so check out Blue Nest Beef. Uh, so their website is Blue Nest Beef, B-L-U-E-N-E-S-T, beef.com. You can check out their website. You can look at all the great products they've got. You can feel good about, you know, eating well uh, and supporting ranchers, supporting working lands like Mark was talking about. I think that's something that really inspired me in this conversation was um, when you were talking about that, you know, it's the fact that conservation can take a lot of different angles and forms and getting the partnerships on the private land side with the working lands um, having people succeed as ranchers, having healthy soil, you know, having good food, good cows, birds being plentiful in those ecosystems. It's a huge success story. Uh, it takes a lot of partners that Rick talks about. So um, hope you enjoy this podcast. Any other uh, thoughts around this, Mark, before we segue into Rick Mariner at Blue Nest Beef? Now let's just jump into it. All right. Thanks, folks. Appreciate you listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. It's great to be here. Uh, this is Todd. I'm going to say that so many of our conversations on the Modern Carnivore platform are around eating responsibly. And so we have a lot of conversations around hunting and angling and foraging and the ethics around that. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that for folks like me and maybe for some of you folks listening, um, you know, the eating responsible part uh, extends to the ethic that we want to have around our purchase food too, making good decisions, making informed decisions. And uh, I don't provision my pantry all with wild food. I'd love to, but I don't think uh, a lot of people do. And so uh, sharing that, like that passion and that ethic for like how we get our food and where it comes from and how it's impacting land can extend beyond uh, the hunting and fishing conversation as well. Um, so, you know, in this conversation, I'm thrilled to have Rick Mariner with Blue Nest Beef. Uh, Rick is the COO. We're talking about healthy soils and healthy birds and healthy food and people today, regenerative ag, all the amazing work uh, Rick and his teammates are doing. Rick, how are you? Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And we've got uh, Mark Norquist here too, my good friend Mark. What's happening in Minneapolis today? Yeah, you know it's it's cold as it always is. Like like I seem to say every time we uh, we get on the uh, on the recording, but it's going well. Well, that's great. So you two met at Pheasant Fest recently, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so Rick, was that your first time at Pheasant Fest, or have you been at Pheasant Fest before? It, unfortunately, it was, but I'm glad I got there. It took me a while to find it, but I'll be back every year from now on. You know, I, I only hunt a few things anymore, and uh, I love to be out on a pheasant hunt. Uh, my favorite is uh, is a little place outside of uh, Pier, South Dakota, and uh, I was turned on to it uh, about five years ago when I uh, 
won a raffle unexpectedly and, 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 a, and a brand new uh, over under came into my life. And I said, well, what is this for? And I said, this is for hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so I found myself uh, quickly into the Upland Bird uh, community. But uh, yeah, I had never been to the festival and uh, what? It was well run and well attended and uh, good energy. So. Yeah. And uh, it always is. And talk about a good group of people, you know, thousands of people coming together around upland conservation and all the things we love, bird dogs and bird hunting, wild food. Um, Pheasants Forever is an amazing organization, too. Uh, Mark, how was Pheasants? uh, How was Pheasant Fest for you? It was it was good. Uh, You know, I I always enjoy it. Like you said, I think it's some of the best people around and you know, got to meet Rick there. You know, he was right over, I was, I was speaking on one of the stages and he had a, it was at their, their blue nest beef booth right off of the stage. And so we got to talk and, and, uh, he let me try one of their, one of their beef sticks. And I'm like, this is, this is amazing. And then when he told me the story behind it, I'm like, this is even more amazing. And, uh, I, I really, I really, uh, clicked with it. So I'm glad he, he, agreed to come and join us for, for a conversation about what, what they're all about, what he's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Those Bobolink beef sticks are amazing. I can't wait to talk about those. And so Rick, are you in Texas right now? Are you based in That's Texas? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're uh, downtown Houston, uh, downtown, downtown too. Uh, we had been a, uh, suburbanites for a long, long time. And as the kids started headed towards the college, uh, my wife and I, Sold out of the suburban house, and we're in a, we're in a, a high rise, uh, really a holding pattern to see um, where this business takes us next. Uh, as we talk a little bit about where our beef comes from, it uh, it's all through this flyway. So I think the uh, the, the center of America might be uh, where we spend a lot more time. But we're flexible now. But we're living in in, in Houston, and uh, two fifths of our uh, leadership team is down here. Myself and Russ are both in the Houston side. Uh, Todd's up in. Uh, Minnesota, uh, Bill is up in the uh, Oklahoma area, and then our uh, our past chief operating officer and president, uh, Dr. Alan Williams, is out of Mississippi. So we're kind of got it cornered or surrounded, I should say. All right, that's cool. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot to talk about to lead into this conversation around mm-hmm. regenerative ag and so forth, and blue nest beef, and what you're all doing with your amazing partnerships and conservation. Um, you know, your background is fascinating. Uh, before we get into your background, like if you're at a barbecue in the Houston area on a weekend and you're talking to your neighbors and like, I call this like the neighbor index for conversations, right? Like if somebody asks, Hey Rick, what have you been up to? Like, what are y'all doing at Blue Nest Beef? Like what's your neighbor conversation around what you're all trying to do? You know, that's it. This, I've replaced um, elevator speeches with uh, 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 conversations around uh, watering holes. You know, it's the um, regenerative agriculture is, is, is definitely the, the, the big umbrella that we're, we're enjoying um, being underneath. Uh, I think we go a little further than straight regenerative agriculture because we're actually doing regeneration of this land uh, through a very active approach. Uh, we don't have to take the, the land that we're operating on, or sorry, our ranchers are operating under out of circulation. We, we may from time to time to let, to let the grasses rest. But I think the most important thing is it's, it's regenerative and profitable um, agriculture that does both good things for your body because it's healthy and it does great things for the planet as we can get into some more details on that. So that's kind of the nutshell. And from there, um, 
yeah, we kind of suss out whether the neighbor is a true believer and uh, has read all the same books or corn-fed, corn-raised. And now we've got some talking to do about uh, the different ways animals evolved. So, I love it. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to talk about it, to have those conversations. And so what brought you into the regenerative ag field from your background? You uh, just lay it right out. Sure. You know what? Um, I spent a, a lot of my time dealing with uh, the releasing of uh, sequestered carbon. I was in the oil patch. I was an oil trader and an oil marketer for a long, long, long time. And in 2013, the company I was working for uh, saw fit to start laying down um, solutions to this carbon problem that we as, as, as consumers and, and voters have let happen. Um, and so we looked at all different kinds of pathways back in 2013 from mechanical carbon sequestration to abatement to efficiency. Um, and one of the ones that really struck me as, as an aha moment was taking agricultural um, efforts in, in a new direction in some cases to, to where no-till or low-till ag, but also starting to work our rangelands in a way that uh, worked with nature, worked with the, 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 the natural soils and the cycle of carbon to put carbon that's currently in the atmosphere back to work in the cycle, in the cycle of uh, soil and plants and animals and, and humans, and then back into the earth again. So it turns out that uh, a healthy patch of, uh, of, of rangeland properly managed with adaptive multi-paddock grazing was something that this company that I was working for wanted to, uh, to pursue. And so we, uh, we went out on the road in a, uh, a, a full year of collaboration with ranchers and policymakers. And I got to be on that team. The, the, the team was called uh, Project Meadowlark. And it's a uh, kind of an interesting and fun name because uh, one of the birds that we're going on to try to help with our process is the meadowlark. So it was a, a project name so that we could start to talk about uh, carbon. Um, very quickly, though, it, we learned that carbon was just one of the indicator molecules that, uh, that water sequestration and retention, as well as um, biodiversity, um, and really all of the things that fall under the heading of ecosystem services, those things that, the, that nature does for us, uh, quote unquote, for free. Um, what could we what could we harness now or what could we join in nature that would take care of some of the problems that we've caused? Uh, mainly, mostly uh, at the time in 2013 was, was carbon. Just so happens that one of the, the, the founders, uh, Russ Konzer, uh, who's here with me in Houston, was also at the same company and he was running that project. And um, after probably six months of exploring different pathways we could do good in the world, um, business plans started to form. And one of them, um, a couple of them, are we see now operating around us, uh, banks stepping up to do ranch transition financing, that is loaning money to ranchers who want to do something differently with their land. Maybe they have to do something differently with the land. Fewer amendments, fewer um, uh, chemicals into the land uh, may need some additional money up front to help, help the deal with laying in fences or re-irrigating water in a way that helps the animals. Um, so that transition financing now exists. The banks and, 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 the, and the farms um, can get access to that. Uh, and there were other business cases that didn't, that haven't lit off yet. Uh, this this idea of a full life cycle analysis of an animal from genetics all the way through to your to your table uh, is just now forming. I think we see it elsewhere in the world. But one of these twenty plus business plans 
was uh, what, we, what we called standard soil. It's almost like a joke. Um, turns out, because uh, it, it was a play on words, right? We've got standard oil from our the heyday of, of uh, big oil companies pooling together for economies of scale and, and then eventually market domination. Um, what could standard soil do if harnessed with, with, a, with a good intent? And that's where the name came from. And that's really how we got into it was, was starting with, with just converting ways of doing things that we had had in the past into something that's more virtuous and more holistic and a closed loop for carbon. So big C got me into it to answer your question. That's amazing. Uh, Mark, do you have any questions for Rick uh, before I ask the next one? Yeah, sure. I was just wondering, you know, I wonder if you could maybe just step back quick for a moment. So you, you've got this company Standard Soil, of which this this brand, a new Blue Nest Beef. Um, but, but for those who aren't familiar with this space, when you talk about regenerative agriculture and you talked about, you know, rangelands and multi-paddock grazing, how do you how do you explain that in its simplest form and how it differs from what the majority of the marketplace is is doing when it comes to ranching? If you could maybe just sort of do do sort of like a a one on one version of that. Yeah, happy to. So I usually do uh, point people in a, a quick direction too, and that's a, that's a to Google soil carbon cowboys. It's a, a production by our colleague and friend Peter Bick. Uh, who's the director of Carbon Nation. And it's a series of short 10, 12-minute videos that debut the, the actual ranchers that are doing the hard work uh, of converting and uh, and then benefiting from just the, uh, the, the uptick. But let me see if I can put it in, in, a, in a thumbnail sketch. Um, large undulates, that is cows and bison and the like, uh, roam these parts for, for eons. And because they roamed for eons, the grass and the ecosystems uh, evolved to support the the roaming, the, the passage of huge herds that were bunched together due to predatory pressures. So uh, predators like wolves and, and cats would keep the uh, these herds in dense, dense packs. Um, and then we read from the 1700s and 1800s um, recounts of the, the, the whole horizon was covered in bison as they would pass. And then they wouldn't come back for some time, possibly seasonally, could be hundreds of days. But as they passed, the the bison in this particular story would would munch the grass down, these native grasses that have been growing in the the period between the passage of the the herds. Uh, They'd munch them down and then they'd they'd keep moving. In the process, their their hooves would press down into the soil, pressing down seeds from from that season, the previous seasons, mashing up the, uh, the, 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 the very top, top soil. To, to allow the seeds contact, uh, as well as some of the uh, the plant matter that it might that it might have died in place and is now being pushed back into the soil. But so with the urine and so with their with their uh, cow patties, um, recycling through their uh, rumen uh, the kinds of fiber and bacterias and and other microorganisms uh, to. to go back onto the soil. So as the herd passed and as it would go on and maybe not be back for 90 or 100 days, a couple things happened. The grass surges. It says, wow, we've just been eaten, but we've evolved. We know how to do this. We're going to send some shoots up. Um, in the meantime, all these roots we don't need because our grasses have been, uh, so the tops of our grasses have been chewed down. We're going to go ahead and shed those because we're going to focus on growing right now. So converting carbon dioxide from the air into carbon in, in our plants via photosynthesis. So two things are happening right away. The roots are dying back, creating um, carbon in the soil that are available to nematodes and fungi and, 
and uh, and other bacteria and insects. And the grass is now sending up new shoots. The key, though, the key which broke um, was that those herds were, were decimated and replaced by animals that were allowed to free range. Um, big, wide open spaces for cattle that had been introduced. Um, and a cattle that's been reintroduced on, on a, a grass, a native grass that's had uh, eons to evolve, isn't used to getting a second bite. And so a nice tasty bite of a blue stem grass um, can handle the second or third or the fourth that bites it all the way down into the soil kills it. And I'm told, I, I don't, I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. I, I'm told by the ranchers that cows are, are finicky. They're, they're kind of like your favorite four-year-old and they're going to very much enjoy the ice cream, not so much the broccoli, but we, and this is, uh, this is the community of ranchers that have been doing this uh, and the ones that we buy from, um, take the predatory pressures of the wolves and the cats and they replace that with psychological barriers. Those are the kinds of thin wires that have a little bit of electricity running through them, solar powered electricity. And at a pretty young age, the cow learns that that wire is not fun to be around. It's going to zap me. Quite frankly, there's plenty of grass here right in front of me. I don't want to be on the other side of that wire. So to watch thousands of pounds of animal being held back by a wire that's smaller, smaller than I can put my finger to right here, uh, is is by itself amazing, but it forces the predatory, um, sorry, the, the the herding nature to work with the grass. And so, last just last Friday, we've got a few Autobahn certified ranches down here in Texas. I'll I'll come back to a second about what that certification means. Invited us out to talk about the spring growing season, and I got to watch seven hundred herd move from one paddock to the next. And I actually asked the kind of the naive question, well, "How do you get them to move?" And uh, the other rancher uh, just rolled up the wire and all the fresh grass that had been on the other side, separated by this little wire, 700 head to start moving towards it. And he comes in behind them again to prevent the cows from wandering back and getting that second bite of the ice cream that they would have if they were left to their own devices. So you can imagine a 6,000 acre farm in this particular case, this herd is marching across it. It might not get back to that paddock, that little paddock for 90 days, maybe not till the end of the season. But when it comes back, it'll be waist high. It will have had time to, uh, to, to sequester some more carbon, absorb rain, allow insects to make homes, to ma- allow birds to come and nest in the, in the footprints uh, and to break up the cow patties. Um, it is, I'm, 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 the word magical comes to mind, but it's, it's anything that's unexplainable feels magical. The great thing is that the soil scientists and the insect scientists and the bird scientists that are following behind the work that we're doing are also amplifying that this is indeed better for the ecosystem. Um, and uh, let, me, let me let me pause there because I think I think there's a few different directions we can go. Is that is that a decent thumbnail, though? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a, a good thumbnail just to just to mm-hmm. introduce the idea of this to uh, to the audience. So, mm-hmm. and and the significance of all of this um, can't be understated, right? You know, if you look at this, is a transition, right? That we're talking about to regenerative ag from like a model that we've been using for decades with our so-called like industrial ag system. And if you look at like the changes in outputs, when you're talking regenerative ag, you're talking practices that are good for the cows, that are good for the plants, that are good for the grasses and soils that produce healthy meat, right? That are good for birds that we're going to talk about that are ultimately good for people, right? 
And so like, if you look at kind of like the track record of how we've gone down this path, like I was reading recently, um, when you look at outputs, um, of what we're talking about here compared to what is like a traditional industrial kind of production system in, you know, traditionally, um, since 1950, I read, uh, 80% loss of vitamins and minerals in our foods and in our soils and everything high yield, uh, but lots of fertilizer inputs and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of intensive use. So like what I hear you saying, Rick, is, is like there's this using nature, emulating um, natural ecosystem dynamics that have been happening for thousands of years on the Great Plains. Right. And, and scaling that out for healthy food and for healthy ranches. What was it like for um, some of your, you know, in, in this case, it's always about kind of like setting up a, a pilot program, maybe to get started, to show an example. Did you have any particular ranchers that were like early onset adopters that like really, um, how, how did, what was their experience like when you were trying to approach them? Um, like what were some of the um, opportunities and challenges that they had to work with for their land um, to make this shift? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there were plenty of farms and ranchers that had gotten this right before we showed up on the scene in 2013. It didn't take an oil company to figure out how the, for this to happen. In fact, it was for those of us from the oil company that were on this project, it was us getting out of the way of certain assumptions we'd made around relatively cheap oil at the time, uh, making a lot of the inputs and uh, mechanization of our food system work. Um, you can imagine how how much more difficult and costly it is um, in dollars and cents case to run certain mechanized and high input food chains uh, when the cost of crude is $110 a barrel. So there had been plenty of farmers and ranchers, uh, some that come to mind that are worth a look up are uh, Joel Salatan out of Polyface Farms in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, showing uh, and by, by example that uh, a well-run piece of pasture that has layers uh, of, of animals and, and humans and insects and grass working together can turn an amazing uh, profit, a profit off of uh, really uh, hundreds, not thousands of acres. Uh, Will Harris down south also demonstrating that this is a scalable solution that we don't have to do 50 head, but can do 500 or 5,000 head through the same process. Um, out west and, and where things are more arid, I think the examples um, are pretty evenly handed between those that got it completely wrong, didn't understand the necessity of water, um, and didn't find as many people ready to, to jump on it uh, further out west. In the north, um, we had to we had to overcome the fact that uh, uh, market uh, plenty of marketing dollars have been spent to. Um, augment the uptake of inputs. So that is the fertilizers, the, the growth um, uh, hormones, the, uh, the, the use of um, antibiotics or things that are other than antibiotic. Uh, those things had all been fast forward buttons to press on the system to make things bigger, and faster, and cheaper under a certain definition of cheaper. Um, when we came into it, there were quite a few. And actually, again, the, the soil carbon cowboys clips that, uh, that I hope people look up uh, have now tens or, or dozens of, of farmers that are stepping up at all various sizes from single, uh, sorry, small herds all the way up to very large herds to say this is possible. By reducing inputs, we actually come out with a healthier land and healthier animal, which flows to us. So, 
Rick, real, yeah. real quick question, just in terms of uh, something you just mentioned, which I wasn't aware of. The system, sort of the business of all of those inputs of what you were talking about, did you indicate that that's a little bit more northern focused? I always thought it was sort of a broad-based sort of across the country, but is there more of a is it because of the climate there's more of a more of a system of that in the in the northern areas? Yeah, you know, now that I uh, think about the phrase, I, I just get the sense that the ranchers and farmers I've talked to in the deep grasses of the south, like the Wachita Basin, that area, um, I think it came a little easier to them to see that they didn't, one, they probably weren't needing to spray as much because those those valleys are, are, are deep and deep in, in the grasses. Um, and the northern states have such narrow growing windows and, and relatively arid land that you could see an easier marketing uh, exercise for those amendment companies to say, hey, we can turn your growing season into a nine-month growing season, even though you only have four. Let us show you how better living through chemistry works. So I think that's the only thing I was trying to I guess get my head wrapped around. Um, I think amendments have been used all over. Heck, uh, we looked at one piece of property in Arkansas, broke my heart, 25 year old, uh, retail, ag retail, uh, real estate person said, Oh, don't worry about this. You can spray all these weeds down. And everything that he was pointing at was food for animals. I'm like, no, if we, if this ranch comes into our program, that's food. Let me send you, some, <laughs> let me send you some media and uh, maybe we'll have one convert. Cause why would I have to, why would I pay to burn down, chemically things that then go on to become healthy, uh, diverse food, uh, it breaks my heart. It's hard to, you know, the old phrase, um, ignorance, uh, gets you so far. Once you know it's negligence. And so hopefully this person, uh, comes around and, and sees that there's a different way to do it. So a lot of outreach going on right now. Yeah. A lot of outreach. I'm glad you brought mm-hmm. up the, the topic of scale. I'd like to mm-hmm. lean into that a little bit. Um, you know, the U.S. beef market, United States is one of the biggest beef producers in the world, right? I was looking the other day, Fortune Business, uh, the forecast from 2021 to 2028 um, is uh, forecasted to grow by 2028. Uh, right now, uh, 2021, the uh, U.S. meat market value was $170 billion, uh, forecasted to grow to $215 billion by 2028. And the uh, United States produces something like the order of 90 million head of cattle, um, major, you know, major player on the global scene. As the global middle class continues to rise, uh, demand for meat uh, will continue to scale out as well. Right. So we see that all across the world. So, um, you know, the question of scale really comes in and like how how we can look toward models that can be scaled out and big enough to to feed this demand and produce the the right um, outputs that we're talking about. You know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing really quickly. I'm always looking at like how other companies assimilate stuff. I was reading um, the other day, there is a, a company in Brazil called Rizomo Agro and they produce organic eggs, right? They produce half of all the organic eggs in the country of Brazil, a country with 212 million people in it. And so they have scaled this thing out. They're working with like 50,000 different farmers and their soils um, are actually sequestering eight tons of carbon per hectare per year while they're doing this regenerative ag, right? So Mm -hmm. they figured out how to scale this stuff. And I think like with your experience coming from the oil and gas industry and working on supply chain scales and everything, I'm sure that's on your mind as well. 
Um, so like, what are the considerations that you think about when trying to figure out how to scale up this model that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is the, this is what we're trying to do. This is the biggest, um, step in that direction that I can think of is to get to scale. Um, let me get step back a bit and say why we made one particular choice uh, when organizing standard soil. Um, it's actually organized under a law called the Public Benefit Corporation. It's kind of like an INC, but leans in towards the fact that we're going to do certain things with the cash proceeds that come off of our sales. Um, the Public Benefit Corporation, uh, loosely the way I thought about it, is a, a bit of a self-sustaining um uh, neo-philanthropic effort. The, the investors and, and equity holders um, recognize in the charter of our company that we're going to do additional things uh, in addition to creating free cash flow for the investors. We're going to do certain things with the land and the water and the animals and health. And it's, it's, it's in our charter. Um, and I think that the reason that's important is because Standard Oil, the previous owner of that uh, name, um, was also optimizing, right? It was taking the situation it found in the laws and the consumer and voter requirements that it found itself in and finding its way through to maximize certain success functions, in their case, uh, dollars. Uh, so we, we take a look at this problem and say, all right, so free cash flow is important because we don't want to have to turn this into a, a nonprofit. We want to be able to flow value that the consumers are telling us they want to to, uh, to spend money on, we're going to flow that into the hands of people that are doing these other certain things and then itemize them. Say, what did your uh, dollar that you spent on this beef do and who did it go to and, and, and how and what are, you, um, what are you, the consumer, able to accomplish in this? And it, it requires a few things. Um, it requires a transparency. It re requires um, uh, access to, to the consumer as well as access to the supplier. And so I think there is a, a space in the middle for a public benefit corporation that raises their hands, opens the kimono uh, to, to all these different analogies to say, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to try to take what's done at hundreds and thousands of head and move them into the ten thousands and hundred thousands of head. Um, and it's, it's going to be a consistent march in that direction. It's already growing. And the, the, the number of other competitors in various regions, and I, I, I welcome this uh, I say this now, my partners might argue that the competitive pressure in this is going to make us um, act a lot like standard oil in trying to optimize around where they are, meeting various needs. But I think there's room. And quite frankly, the best ideas that do the best net good for the planet are going to be the ones that rise to the top. Uh, the ones that fake it, the ones that try to say, oh, but you know, when we define regenerative, we mean it this way that also you know requires that you do something horrible, um, they're, they're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out, right? And, and when those things come out, competition in the market, but competition for doing the right thing is, uh, is what we're going to need to do to get the scale. And that's, that's the key, right? Make the right thing the easy thing. Right now, we define the right thing is I can go to my store without much um, headache, reach into a, um, a cooler, grab a, grab a steak, and head home. It was easy for me. And I, and, and I could see that it cost me dollars per pound. Um, but the, more and more, the consumer is reaching out and grabbing something and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't believe I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the easy thing. What is the right thing? Well, the right thing is I want to make sure that this has come from a, 
now we start to insert additional consumer wants. They want it from a regenerative land. They want it to do it in a in a way that's um, holistic for the animal. They want to do it in a way that's local. Uh, name your value proposition on top of it. So I want to find out what the consumer is willing to do and buy and, and act in the agency. And if that value is higher than the commodity, so be it. Let's, but let's then flow that value, uh, not to the traders, but to the ranchers that are actually making the efforts in the, in the field. And so that's why I think a public benefit corporation is a is a convenient way to get to that scale. Um, let me let me put a pin there because we have some other global examples of grass-fed, grass-finished scale that I can I can point you towards. The U.S. is getting there, but we're not there yet. Yeah, that's great. And 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 you know, you touched on so much there, and and you touched on the fact that there's a lot of consumers that want to do the right thing. They want to know that they're feeling good about the choices that they make, that they're making informed decisions especially this audience, you know, eating responsibly, having that ethic extend from their hunting and angling kind of life to their general purchase considerations. You brought up uh, earlier in the combo, the life cycle assessment. And I think that that's really important because like how this typically works is like, I, I hear a lot of folks, you know, when we're, you go to the health food store and you can see like the regenerative kind of food, and maybe it's priced a little higher than what you could find over in the other section, right? But like, it's also a fact that um, I'm going to use this grad school term, externalities, right? So, like in our market, when when we buy certain things, when we buy food, when we buy clothes, when we buy anything that we buy, um, without that life cycle assessment, we don't really factor in the external costs of all the things that happened. Um, even though the, the price might be here, right? So like having life cycle assessments on uh, traditional kind of industrial systems that would really reflect what the true costs are with the losses of, of you know, uh, of maybe carbon storage or the all the fertilizer stuff or the policy around subsidies um, can get us, I think, further along the line with parity in our markets to, to have... Um, to have good food, organic food, uh, regenerative food priced more competitively with what might be traditional pricing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, uh, Mark or Rick. Yeah, you know, let's go ahead and unpack that term. It's uh, it's I think one that we need to get our uh, really understand to make this make sense. Externality that is making external to your analysis things that you either don't understand or can't control. It's actually a very uh, efficient way for executives to perform uh, because they'll say to their stakeholders, um, okay, so what is your definition of success? And okay, once we know what those ratios, preferably in dollars and cents will be, okay, let us alone for a quarter. We'll come back to report to you that we succeeded on these success functions. Um, and in the process of that, defining the success, those these things are internal to the equation, and these other things are external. Um, one of my favorite, most recent deeper dives is into the, the slavery and child uh, slavery that was used to make a lot of the chocolate that used to pass through our hands. Until one or two companies stepped up and said, we can figure out how to make chocolate and chocolate bars at a reasonable price available to you in these developed countries without slavery. We think slavery shouldn't be involved with chocolate. And suddenly people, one, they didn't realize for the most part that they had been externalizing 
uh, child labor and slavery in their chocolate purchases. And now it's right there in your label. And so, bam, you've got to go from ignorance to negligence. Oh, damn it. For for darn near the same price, I can get slavery-free chocolate? Yeah, I'd like to go ahead and do that. So the question now is, what have we made external in our food system over the last 80 years? Um, carbon, yeah, carbon sequestration is and releasing of soil, uh, biodiversity, um, micronutrition, not, not just calories, but what are all the different things that the, that the animal can, can bring to us that we're fast forwarding. So the, 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 the list of things that we've externalized to make this a low cost per calorie exercise um, is, is coming home the roost. And it's coming home the roost in a big way because fields aren't working, people aren't feeling well, and they're, and, and they're demanding at the, at, the, at the consumer level a difference. And that's what we're here to do. That's what businesses like ours should be harnessing Quite frankly, let me let me riff on that for a second more because if we don't give the consumer what they want in the aisles or at their house, they're going to take it to the voting booth, right? People will uh, satisfy their needs in the open market and free marketplace if they're allowed to, if they can actually find it. If they can't, then they will do collectively what they can't do individually, and that's how we start to get policy and laws which I'm not in actually in a big favor of. I'm, I, I think that the market, if left to its own devices and, and looking directly at these externalized costs, can, can navigate our way through it. Waiting for policy and, and, and votes to actually do it, uh, we're, again, we're getting into the point of compromise and, and uh, the possibility of yeah, missing, missing the holistic good that could, could come out of a, a proper ecosystem. So again, lots of, there's lots of rabbit holes in here. If we were rabbit hunting, we would have a field day right now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> lots of rabbit holes. Mark, uh, do you have any questions you want to ask Rick? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking here, um, you know, what, one of the, uh, I do want to get to the, to the Audubon certified conservation ranchers designation. Cause I think that's the, that's the confluence piece here with, with sort of the, the outdoor, uh, hunter lifestyle, which is, is I think something that, that I, w- I want people to be aware of, but you know, how do you, um, how do you respond, Rick, when, when, you know, you look at a lot of the discussion out there these days in terms of beef, in terms of the food system from a purely carbon lens of, of this is how we're looking at it. There's always the discussion on beef being the highest carbon footprint um, and, and, and everything from all of the inputs that we've just talked about, which are very different with with your type of system with regenerative agriculture, because you've got all different kinds of, of inputs. Um, but you know, people are looking at methane and, and all of those issues. So, uh, I think there's, there's definitely a, a, a voice out there that's along the lines of, of saying that we just should not be eating beef. So how do you, how do you respond to that, that conversation when that comes up? That's an excellent uh, question, and quite frankly, if those accusations were true, we'd, we'd have a we'd have a tough time going for sure. Because um, the same people that want to do good in the world would be looking at the beef and saying, "Oh, this this is not in, in line with that." But that's actually not what the data is showing. And and I'm going to point you towards a second edition of a book called Defending Beef. Uh, the first edition was like 2014. Um, the second one is, 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 is just out now. It's on Amazon. It's excellent. And it really walks through the data as presented by uh, Nick Lett, the author. Um, it's kind of a legal case almost to say, when you track um, the number of inputs 
and the number of um, uh, parts that, uh, of the economy necessary to move commodity proteins to market. Um, in the words of uh, Joel Salatan, they might as well be putting pouring diesel right on top of your meat. It's a very heavy cost to, to process through the way that we're doing it. And the, and the cost to the consumer in dollars and cents uh, is able to be kept low um, because of those those uh, those inputs are not being looked at in terms of their analysis. So now the consumer says, wait, we want to include those. What, what, how did you get to market? Um, I don't think that the commodity beef or commodity protein uh, market is going to get to get through this current, is going to survive through this current swell in consumer sentiment um, without taking a hard look at those inputs. If you turn to the grass-fed, grass-finished, um, it's, it's, it's night and day. The, the, the number of inputs uh, right off the bat in terms of um, carbon necessity to, to add fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, um, and, and, and medicines for our animals are, are just not there. The, the study that I, I, I think of um, along the lines of Alan Savory's work coming out of South America where he looked at really you break the problem into three. You could have uh, conventional roaming unherded uh, cattle. That's what you see when you go across most of the countryside here in America, left to, to wander as they like as option A. Option B is to leave it um, uh, empty with no animals. I'm not going to call that fallow because I've recently been taught that fallow is, is, is actually an older definition. The older definition is actually is to work with the land, these working lands, in a way that they were evolved to be worked. And so if you take the three of those through an LCA, a life cycle analysis, um, you would think that the, the, the highest net good would be just to leave the land by itself. But that, like, as we talked about earlier in the show, that's not how the grasses and the grasslands evolve. They evolve to have periodic fire, to have periodic grazing, to have um, periodic stresses and then times of, of, of growth. Um, that's actually the, the data that's leading us to say that what we're doing is, is not just carbon, um, less carbon intense, uh, nor is it even carbon neutral. In certain cases, in certain parts of the, of, of the world where grasses evolved, it's actually carbon negative. That is drawing carbon out of the atmosphere that we've been putting it up for some time. Uh, but again, that's just one factor. Uh, we, there's a danger of being, uh, it's either human or the engineer in all of us that says, okay, so if we focus on carbon, then we do everything we can to focus on carbon sequestration. And that will lead to, lead to what we call in economics, perverse incentives. No, we really have to look at the holistic regenerative approach. Uh, and, and from there, we get a lot more of the benefits besides carbon going into the working lands model that we're, we're seeing. So it's, uh, again, I, it's been better articulated by uh, the work in defending beef. I'd, I'd recommend that as a, as a gateway argument into this uh, into this discussion on, on behalf of, of beef yeah i think that's a great explanation and um you know a holistic approach with carbon as one of the many co-benefits as like mm -hmm. of of those ecosystem services we deal with the same thing in forest conservation in my day-to-day -day work and it's the same exact thing same kinds of conversations same kinds of challenges so it's uh, really good to hear you say that rick Let's talk yeah. about Audubon and your certified ranching programs. This is a fabulous partnership. I was stoked to see this, and I'd love to hear how that all unfolded. 
you know, it really is a, a credit to Audubon just that they've uh, they, they've taken this uh, by the horn, so to say. Um, you know, my, my interaction so far with them has been has been relatively light, but the work of Blue Nest Beef that predates uh, me rejoining the, the company here um, was looking, I think, searching for indicator species to say that good things were happening. The, the, the problem with carbon is that it's an accretive process. Um, although every rancher I've met with and walked around their land is very quickly to pull out a spade and and uh, and dig down a foot or two to show me how much topsoil they're building. You can see it, you can feel it, you can smell it. Uh, but science uh, is pragmatic and science is skeptical as it should be. And so the scientists that crawl across these fields and, and look at the double blind uh, tests, uh, side-by-side tests, I should say, um, they're, they're going to have to catch up with what's actually being done by these ranchers. So enter in. So how do we, what, what indications of healthy ecosystems matter to us? And, and so the Audubon uh, conservation ranching program, as, as far as I can tell from, from the, they're independent. They don't take any money from, from ranchers. They don't take any money from us. Um, they have the key to uh, their indicator species is the birds. We watch the birds. The birds uh, are very hard to rush. Um, uh, the scientists uh, that we had recently joined us out in the field talked about that you couldn't stock birds. You have to have an ecosystem ready for birds. We often think about stocking ponds and throwing trout or fish in it. But if that ecosystem isn't ready for a introduction of a bunch of birds, a couple of things. So you're going to fly away to try to find some, or you're going to have a lot of dead birds. And so the, the proverbial canary in the coal mine or the canary of that indicator species is this bird. And so this is another um, thing we've heard when we've talked to ranchers, um, especially across generations. Uh, some of the old timers say, we haven't heard a Bob White call since my uncle had the land uh, back before, name your date a long time ago. Um, Meadowlarks, uh, birds that have, that have uh, not been seen on these ranches when they've been chewed down or, 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 or row cropped are now finding habitat um, in this critical bird flyway. Um, and I reiterate again that there's, there's no pay to play program here. That if you're not uh, adhering to the Audubon uh, behaviors and you're not an Audubon rancher, it's just there's, there's, there's no way you can buy and get that stamp of approval on your, on your operation. And same goes for us. If we're a bird-friendly beef, it's because this independent, high-quality, uh, high-trust group has come in and looked at it, uh, assessed it, and, and is continuing to audit that it's, uh, in fact, bird-friendly. And so I couldn't be a, a more beneficial partnership with them. Uh, we appreciate their members, and uh, a fair amount of, of, of uh, folks are also customers. Um, and if we go back to the pheasants forever, pheasants fest, um, oh, getting to meet some of these customers that have been customers since the very beginning, um, that, that are also in that over overlap. We actually had to split our trade booth into two sides. One that just wanted to sample our new offering here with uh, Boba links and the other one that just wanted to talk about birds and beef and land. And, and, and that was a lot of fun. So <laughs> doing good work and then being able to show in this, indicator species that good things are happening you can't fool birds they don't come to your land unless unless you've got something for them yeah well said uh well said and and they're bellwethers right like we look at grouse as a bellwether and say when when grouse are there in the forest uh, it means it's an and story it means like the and forest resiliency and carbon sequestration and working communities and everything else and that's what i hear you saying with this program it's like we can have healthy bird ecosystems and 
healthy food and healthy people and carbon sequestration. I love the and part of it. You know, I think that that's where innovation can come in and that's where we need to be moving with sustainability conversations and, and conservation. You're talking about the Boba Links. Um, oh, have we enjoyed these beef sticks? Uh, we have to talk a little bit about this. One of the cool things, I love Boba Links, by the way, from, from a bird species. They're amazing. So listeners out there, just a fun fact about these birds, they'll migrate like 5,000 miles, like from North America. They spend their breeding time up here in North America, like over the Great Plains and up farther north. And they'll go all the way to South America, I think, and back. Um, so like they'll fly like 5,000 miles. They're flying as far as like turns and Bartel Godwits in some cases. So these really cool emblematic birds that you've got. And then you've got this great, fun, sourdough fermented beef snack um that is just like so good so talk a little bit about that and uh what that was like uh bringing that to market oh right boba links yes i love to talk about boba links you know boba links um it comes back to your question about scale look the 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 choice cuts of well marbled ribeyes um are, are pretty easy to sell people want them uh, we have to get them into their hands um but there is a lot uh, to the animal and if we're going to do our jobs correctly we need to do it at the best scale that we can and so we started to look at the snack food market because not every day do you want to sit down to a giant uh steak some people do but not everybody does and so how can we get this nutritional goodness and ecosystem services pushed out through another channel. And so snack foods came up and jerkies kind of made sense. But when we started experimenting with, with uh, sausages, Todd Churchill, who's our, our, our CFO head of marketing and a, and a rancher himself, uh, I guess stumbled into this idea of fermentation and his, he says it, he says it best. Why would we start with quality uh, ecosystems, good grass, good soil, healthy animal, uh, a thoughtful and mindful distribution channel. And then the last minute hit with a bunch of preservatives. And so what other ways can we look to preserve our meat that again, stay in tune with, with our, with our overall mission and, and, and uh, guiding principles. And so fermentation came, came, came to light. And it's actually not a very easy process um, uh, unless you have time. And that's uh, in an in industrial food system. Time is money, but the mobile links that, uh, we experimented with here. Take, a, I've been calling it sourdough for meat, but I get some cringed looks at it. So it's actually another uh, bacterial and, and, and uh, process similar to sourdough, but specific for, for meats. And the first 24 hours of this meat in the fermenta fermentation process simultaneously adds the flavor, that little tang you get when you, uh, when you taste it, and acts as the preservative, the natural preservative that gives it the kind of um, life. You can put it in a backpack. It's it's uh, it's not greasy. It has a, a number of um, different taste notes, kind of like a sourdough is to to bread, which is why I think um, driving uh, samples at these various shows and and, and stores that, that we want to work with is so key. Because I don't think a lot of people have tasted fermented beef sticks before. What what do you guys thought? You, I, I think you have a chance to bite into them now. I just uh, I just finished my very last one as as you were talking there, uh, because my daughter ate the rest of them because she loved them so much. So uh, our our eleven year old daughter can't get enough and said, "When are you going to order some more, Dad?" And I think, and I think I'm going to do it today. Um, 
But no, it's the flavor. I love the flavor. So, and I have to say, I'm pretty particular about my my meat snacks and uh, the flavor of it and the moisture content and the denseness of it. I I really like it. So I don't know, Todd. What, what did you think? But I I thought it was great, and I, and I like that that little bit of sour flavor with it. It's it's great. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. I I think the taste is amazing. It develops in your mouth. So it's like you, you bite into it and then it just right. kind of develops over a couple of seconds. It tastes really good. Uh, it's fresh. Like it's like moist. You can tell that it's like a quality kind of uh, meat snack. And I think it's wonderful. Like for folks that are hunters and anglers, uh, you have your pack, you know, to buy some meat snacks like this, some boba links and just throw in your pack and to be able to have as a snack like that. It's a great way to have like a really good quality snack, good food, tastes good, you know, and it's easy to just throw a couple in your pack. So I, I was really excited um, about the whole thing. And uh, I think they taste amazing. Oh, you hit, you hit two of the notes that we were going for the, the portability and the non-greasiness. We don't add any other that proteins at all. This is a hundred percent beef stick. Uh, no, no, no other animal fats in there to, to add back some juiciness because we don't lose it. Um, and then that long flavor, you know, the mouthfeel being just enough to, to, to bite into, but then it just keeps going and going. I love doing the trade shows where people have a chance to actually sample a bite and you see them come to this realization, what is fermented beef and whoa, what is that long flavor note at the end? So I'm glad you guys had the same experience. Hey, Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, but given that it is, it, you're using the fermentation process for preservatives. So I'm presuming no nitrates or nitrites in it, or is, yeah, is that correct? Nothing added artificial. Uh, the uh, uh, capsulated nitrite nitrates that are added in uh, necessary to keep things healthy on the shelf. That's being added by the uh, the bacteria that that's actually fermenting. Um, the, the meat in the, at the very beginning. And really, it's a two-step process, you say, 24 hours of fermentation followed by 12 hours of smoking uh, in the wrapper. So the, the smokiness, uh, again, is adding a layer of preservation as well. And so, again, we don't recommend, uh, you know, leaving it for years, but it's, it's, it's pretty stable. And for a hunter or, or a hiker or someone that's trying to put on some miles, um, actually, if you've done work with Blue uh, Nest Beef, you've come, probably come across our our customer service manager, uh, Josh, uh, he's also a kayaker and in long distance kayaking weight matters and what you put in your pack in your kayak matters. And so these little ounce sticks are not only are they full of flavor, they're also full of protein. So you're getting a real clean, dense, um, energy source and you can mix them with your eggs in the morning on your way uh, out to the river or what have you. So we're finding a lot of the hikers and hunters uh, coming in, but you mentioned your 11 year old daughter. Um, we were at that pheasant uh, fest and, and, and I think the interaction with the kids was some of the most fun because we've all been to trade shows with little kids. So if you have, you know, that there's only going to, there's going to come a moment in that, in that trip where things are going to go wrong. It'll be very handy if people's blood sugars were are up. And so a few of those families came by our booth and the kid would try it. And the mom or dad would look at the, the kid and say, if I get it, are you going to eat it? Absolutely bag of 10 <laughs> and that <laughs> helped that family get through that trade show. So, you know, Doing good is uh, redefined all across the board. But really, th those are those are two um, two great feedbacks on that. I appreciate that, guys. I think the flavors uh, that we're going to be start experimenting with this summer, uh, how to add to it. Uh, Got to make sure we don't overdo it because I think uh, 
it's already pretty long flavor profile and staying clean and natural is going to be our, is our key for any new flavors we bring out. Yeah, we really, uh, we really enjoyed that a lot, Rick. And so folks, um, we've got a discount code for you. You're going to want to order some. It's Modcarn80. If you put Modcarn80 on the discount code for your first order, for your first order of Boba Links, you get 80% off of that. Thank you, Rick, for that generous uh, discount code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let us know what you think about these things. Uh, I think you're going to like them as much as we do. And so uh, we're excited about having that opportunity, and we appreciate it. Yeah, I would definitely say get out there and try them. And, and I think, you know, you talk about put, throwing them in the backpack. You know, the one thing I always tr- find is is I always have this idea in my head of I'm going to take, I'm going to make jerky of some sort, or I'm going to make some wild game product and take it with me or food that I'm going to take with me on a hunt or out fishing. And the reality is I'm always so strapped for time at the end. I, I just end up going, you know, getting something in the gas station. And that's where I think something like, something like this is just like, it's it's a great way to, to approach it and to take it. Striving, with it, so. striving to make the right thing easy includes exactly that. I think uh, this, this uh, summer in Denver, we're, we're going to the outdoor retailers trade show and June, June 9th in Denver to talk with these specialty retailers. Uh, but the other channel is to, 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 to join the fray and, and at the uh, at the convenience store, the grab and go, the the road warriors, the the trips, um, so that so that we can have a, a healthy snack, something that's making the right thing easy. Uh, so look for us soon. I think we've got the, the outreach for partners in the retail space is ongoing. If if you're hearing this, if you've tried this, and you think this belongs in your uh, in your marketplace, uh, reach out. We're, we're it's all about getting net good at scale, and so every possible way we can touch the consumer. Uh, and then flow that value back to the ranchers that are doing these good things. That's, that's, that's the reason we exist. Yeah. And, and it really underscores the, uh, you know, the value, you know, you've got some amazing conservation happening on these working landscapes that you're, you're fixing to do, right. You've got ranching partners, you've got Audubon, you know, you're bringing a good quality food product to the market it's good for the birds. It's good for the soils and grasses. So there's a lot of ands here. And like, you know, when you think about the importance of working landscapes and bringing private landowners and businesses together, you know, these are the kinds of sustainability solutions that can be incredibly impactful, right? They help our conservation efforts. They scale it out. They, you know, bring people together around food and around healthy landscapes. So people, um, People can find you at bluenestbeef.com, right? You have, That's uh, correct. Yep. You're on Instagram. You're on Facebook. I subscribe to your Facebook channel. So check that out on social. And then any place else, you've got some links we're going to put in the show notes um, for some of the stuff we talked about, Rick. Any other things you want to add um, on the on the combo for how people can reach out and connect with Blue Nest Beef and all the good work you're doing? It is. It's all about connection. You know, we're at the scale and the story now where word of mouth helps uh, tell the story, share share a few sticks. I really do believe that uh, trial drives um, uh, an aha moment for folks that haven't tried a fermented beef stick. Um, uh, for those, uh, we, we've had to uh, focus on some regions for our blue nest boxed beefs. So or if you're in, in one of those regions, um, it's the best way to try it. You know, I want to say a little bit about why we're not in all regions right now and why we will be again, but much more mindfully. And it's all about stewardship. 
Um, we had a, had a, a national distribution channel for our um, blue nest beef, but the stress on our supply chain in America, really the globe, uh, due to the cost of energy as well as this the, the flood of, of demand for delivered goods, um, didn't allow us to fulfill our mission. And what I mean specifically is that frozen beef was being lost in transit. And look, if this was just an INC and it wasn't our mission to do net good, um, we roll that into the cost of marketing. Look, there's going to be some losses and so, so it goes. But when a customer called from Seattle and said that the beef that had been arrived uh, thawed, it broke her heart and ours because that animal gave its life and it was for waste. And so we need to be better. We need to do the, the very best we can with the stewardship that's been entrusted to us. And if that includes retrenching back to the places that we can deliver perfectly the mission that we're uh, here to, to do, then, then so be it. And only re-enter those markets when we can do so in a way that um, honors the rancher, the farmer, the animal, and the system that we're trying to build. So if you don't see us in every city right away, it's because we're taking a mindful approach to this to get rolling again. Um, but check us out. Do, do, do go to bluenestbeef.com, follow our story, subscribe. We have Wednesday emails that pretty much we have our board meetings right out in the open. Uh, we're always looking for folks that have better ideas how we can do this at scale. So reach out, collaborate, looking for partners, and, 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 you, guys, and you guys as well. Um, what, what a great uh, way to tell a story about adding uh, meat to our omnivorous diets through modern carnivore. So thanks for having me, guys. Rick Mariner, it's great to have you on the podcast. Look forward to future conversations. Thanks for your great work. Mark, it's always good to connect. Um, look forward to talking again soon and uh, enjoyed this combo very much. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.